second, but the first reading is from Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift, your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your altar there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary when he is taking you to, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I'm still not used to the fact that a third of the congregation walk out when I stand up. <laughs> anyway, just a word, brothers and sisters, for you. Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the, the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In light of the announcement, I think it's worth reminding you that... It is God, his love, his faithfulness, his truth that is at the foundation uh, and it will stand. So as we turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 5, let me pray. Father, quieten our hearts and minds. Give us the grace to hear your word this morning. Help us to understand it. Give us the assurance from your love for us to face what needs to be faced in our own lives and by your spirit enable us to confront what needs to be confronted. Father, this is a, this is a stark word 
that brightly illuminates sin in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we also pray that we hear the comforting word of your grace, that we know that it is by your love for us through the cross that we stand. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you will know uh, that I, before I was a pastor, I used to be a physio. And uh, one of the things that used to frustrate the living daylights out of us as physio students was that we learned all this stuff, but you actually didn't know how to put it into practice until you actually got into the hospitals and you started seeing patients with these conditions. And you go, ah, that's why I'm understanding that. The gap between theory and practice was pretty big for us. What we've got this morning in the Sermon on the Mount is the transition that takes us from theory to practice. Jesus has given us this statement, this principle. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And like I said last week, Sean, notwithstanding... uh, Yeah, it's further away this week. Yes. This is like saying that you're smarter than Einstein, more beautiful than the supermodel, stronger than the strongest man, Eddie the Beast. You perform better than the religious elite. That's what you're saying. A righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus' first hearing hearers would have been baffled. How is such a thing possible? How is such a thing possible? Because these guys were the best of the best. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's showing that what they called true biblical faith, in reality, was a fake. Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, contrasts real biblical gospel Christianity with the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's really important that we get it because the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, can I say, is alive and well today. We need to be able to discern what they needed to be able to discern. What is real and what is fake? Because eternity is at stake. We need to be able to discern what is true Christianity and what is not. When I talk to people about Christianity, often I get the impression that what they are rejecting is the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's actually not real Christianity. And if you're here this morning, and perhaps you're still working this whole Christian thing out, can I say it's really, really good that you're here? But you need to listen to this, because maybe the thing that you've rejected in the past and said, no, that's not for me, maybe you'll see that true Christianity is actually quite different. Jesus moves us, as I said, from the principle, righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, to the practice. And in chapter 5, what he does is he unpacks six examples. 
He gives us six case studies of what this actually looks like. And he starts, I think, fairly universally with the whole issue of anger. Is anyone... Anger's not an issue for you? Is anyone here? You know, perhaps? No? No. For the record, no one is indicating that anger is not an issue for them. I can think back over the last 24 hours. Anger's an issue for me. It is alive and well. I think Jesus starts with this and he moves to such common issues like speaking the truth, like lust, things that we all struggle with. What does a surpassing righteousness look like? How is it even possible? I've got four little points. I've laboured long and hard. Last week I gave you Fs. This week I'm giving you Ds, okay? Except for the first one, which is context, but that doesn't count. Okay? The deception of anger, the danger of anger, and the diffusing of anger. Pastoral oversight team, I hope you're putting ability to give alliterative uh, titles to the sermon. Uh, That's got to be high in the criteria. Um, But that's what we're going to work through. Context. If you've got your Bibles, pick them up. One of the dangers that we actually have by putting stuff up on the screen or in your leaflets is what you end up with is you remove that bit of the text from every other bit of the text that's around it. And you have to recognise that this is one little bit in a story that spans Genesis 1 through to Revelation chapter 22. We need to understand it in context. And can I say the Sermon on the Mount is particularly vulnerable because it's got all these pithy little sayings. It's got all these cool little ways that when Jesus phrases things, we can pluck it out and see it uh, wrongly because we remove it from its context. We need to understand it firstly within it, the sermon itself. Jesus didn't say this with the idea that we just focus in on this, even though inevitably when you're preaching, you do. He actually gave us a sermon, or Matthew summarised a sermon in chapters 5 to 7, that we are meant to see as a whole. And so we need to have the Beatitudes and the whole thing about salt and light in there in the front. And we need to think about where it's going in the end, where Jesus actually says, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, you know, it's the man, the woman who builds their house on the rock. Jesus expects us to do this. We need to see it in its context. And not only that, we need to see it within the context of the gospel. Jesus didn't just come as a sage speaking these wise words. Jesus came not only speaking the words of God, but doing the deeds of God and dying and rising again. So we actually need to see Jesus' teaching in light of the whole gospel. And not only that, we need to see it in light of the Old Testament. Do you remember chapters 1 to 3 we looked at at the start of the year? Again and again and again, if you've got your Bibles, flick back over. You'll see this all the way through. I'll give you an example. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. They go back to Isaiah. Okay, then we go a little bit further on. Um, Bethlehem in Judea is where the Messiah was going to be born. This is what the prophet has written all this Old Testament stuff. And remember in five, chapter 5, verse 17, what does Jesus say that he's come to do with the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? He's not come to throw it in the bin. 
He's actually come to fulfill it. And throughout the Old Testament, there are promises, like Diana read for us this morning, from Jeremiah 31. What we see there is that God promises to make a new covenant, a new agreement with his people. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. God is going to do something different. He's actually going to work in them in a new way. I will be their God. They will be my people. Ezekiel promises a similar thing. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus is teaching and acting in light of these promises that God is doing something new, that God is actually going to do an inward work. And Jesus knows that. Because the issue is not people's behavior. First and foremost, the issue is not their behavior. For those of us who are parents, uh, you may recall getting compliance from your child, but it's crystal clear that defiance is actually what's happening inside. You remember that? Maybe you remember seeing this? Where they go, thank you. My kids never did that. I saw it in other people's kids. I didn't see it in mine. Where, what, yeah, thank you, Sean. Sorry, you know, I said I'm sorry. It's like, really? Okay, okay, just settle down. The heart's the issue. Ezekiel said it. Jeremiah said it, Jesus said it, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. The issue is not telling people to not murder, the issue is to change their hearts. That's what Jesus has come to do. Sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person. Not the externals, not the stuff that the scribes and the Pharisees were so concerned about being seen to do the right thing, but actually having a heart that wants to do the right thing. And so Jesus takes us now into the example number one of anger and hate and murder. The deception of anger. Jesus says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Where, did he, where was that said? Well, you should know that. It was one of the Ten Commandments. There it is there, number six. You shall not kill. You shall not murder, and anyone who does murder will be subject to judgment. What does Jesus then say in verse 22? But I tell you. But I tell you. Jesus is taking them back to the original intention of that law, because what had happened is that the scribes and the Pharisees had reduced it to externals. And so as long as they could say that they hadn't put anyone in their graves... I can tick that box. I have not murdered anyone. But that was actually never the intention of God's law. And Jesus brings us to that. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He says, it's not actually what you do with your hands that is of primary importance. It's actually happening what's happening in your heart. It's not... It's not what you do, it's your motive, it's your intention. 
It's your attitude. The idea is not to get us to do the right things, but to love the right God. Jesus, when he was asked the greatest commandment, quotes Deuteronomy. In case you think this is just a New Testament thing, and he said, way back there, the greatest command, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That is the greatest command that sums up the whole law. Love. Love God. Love your neighbor. So Jesus says it's not whether you've actually put someone in their grave that matters. Do you hate? Do you show disdain? Contempt? You know what I'm talking about. You know that little kind of, sorry teenagers amongst you, you know that, whatever, you know. Is there anything more contemptuous than when a teenager just goes, whatever? Don't care. Don't care. Just that contempt. That anger that festers within you. Maybe you've got the nice, polite hills veneer on. You might even be smiling and saying pleasant words, but inside, something else is happening. That contempt that's seen in the the little roll of the eyes, you know, the little toss of the head that kind of, they walk in, they say something, yeah, as if. That dismissal, that easy throw away. Jesus says, that is murder. That is murder. He says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that's just an Aramaic curse word that means something like empty, is answerable to the court. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Do you really see your anger at this level? When you got angry last time, did you think, this is murder? Do we see it like that? Jesus is using an extreme example, and we'll come back to that. But do we see, because I think hate and anger and contempt are very good at dressing themselves up in other clothes, making themselves look very respectable, explaining themselves away. If you knew what they had said to me, if you knew what they had done to me, you know, you would agree that hating them is the right thing. And maybe not shaking fists and screaming abuse, but that shutting down of relationship. That walking away, that refusing to love, to engage. A book that I found very helpful by a guy called Dan Allender called The Wounded Heart. He said, all sin is felt to be reasonable and justifiable given the situation. All sin is felt to be reasonable and justifiable given the situation and rarely experienced as malicious or God dishonouring in its intention. When you've been sinned against, who is the most dangerous person in the room? It's you. 
because you feel entitled to hate back, to return sin with interest. Because it is justifiable. If you understood what they had done to me, how would you say that's wrong? Sin, in fact, Orlinda continues, seems to be the most reasonable, rational, common sense response to a fallen, frightening and potentially dangerous world. Our anger, we justify it. Our hate, we justify it. Our contempt... We rename it. We just call it discernment, don't we? When we find ourselves judging someone else, putting them down, and we just tell ourselves that we see them clearly as they are. Maybe you do. Contempt sometimes has crystal clear vision. But what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Do you take that vision and in love and humility go to your brother, go to your sister and seek to set things right, to encourage them, to admonish them, to build them up? Or do you have the conversation with the friend that seeks to validate your opinion of them? You've got no intention of raising it with, that, with the person involved. You just seek to bring them down and so bring yourself up in the process. Or maybe you don't do that, but what you do do is you just rehearse it to yourself. Yes? And you build yourself up about how terrible they are. We justify it. And Jesus says, it's murder. So can we never be angry? Jesus got angry, didn't he? Jesus got angry. Remember that thing in the temple with the whip and all that kind of stuff? And you know what? The scripture does actually allow that there is a possible thing as righteous anger. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin, implying it's possible. But as I look at my own heart, I'd have to say the incidences of righteous anger are very few and far between. Mostly I get angry if you mess with me or what I love. But the righteous anger when I hear about injustices happening overseas or at a distance or with people that I'm not directly involved with, well, that's a lot slower. That's a lot slower to come. But if you mess with me, straight away, and I can justify it, I can tell you why it's a right response, and I bet you can do the same. Our anger burns when we are the offended party. Be very careful just to say, it's righteous. You are playing with snakes. It's a very dangerous thing to play with anger. It's very dangerous in the first instance for the one who is actually the subject of the anger. And Jesus jumps to this. Verse 25, he says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, the officer into prison. And truly I tell you, you will not get out till you have paid the last penny. What he says 
is anger shows no mercy. It's a very dangerous thing to be the subject of someone else's anger. Some of us know this because we have been there. It is a very dangerous thing. There's a movie in 1995 called Heat. Has anyone seen this? Yeah, it's worth watching. Come on. You guys have got to see new mo- more movies. This has got De Niro and uh, Al Pacino in it. It's a cops and robbers kind of thing. And I'm going to spoil it for you. Last week, I kept the movie a secret, but no. Robert De Niro is betrayed by a part of his gang, by one of his gang members. Okay? And at the end of the movie... He's just committed a heist. He has millions of dollars in cash. He's got his girlfriend next to him in the car. They're going to catch a plane, a private chartered plane, and to disappear. He can get away scot-free. And then one of, his, one of his people on the ground gives him a ring and says, by the way, the guy, the guy that betrayed you, I know you're not interested in this, but he checked into a hotel. This is the hotel under this name. And you see De Niro wrestle with what's next. And even though he's the baddie, you want him to keep driving, you want him to get away. He pulls off the freeway. He goes to the hotel and exacts revenge. Even though it costs him his life to do it. That is what anger and hate does they will hunt you down until they have got you that is what anger and hate will do and jesus says if you are the object do whatever you can to reconcile sort it out but not only because of you it is even more dangerous for the one who is actually the one who is angry verse 22 The one who dismissively says to their brother, you fool, what are they in danger of? Not the wrath of a human being, scary as that is, but the fires of hell, the wrath of God. Jesus is saying that anger and hate and contempt, they are completely inconsistent with the life of the kingdom. And if that is your life, if that is what characterizes you, can you actually say that you are in? Can you actually say that you are part of a game? If you love to hate, if you're happy to condemn, because you know what? Religion builds up because of personal performance. The religion of the Pharisees They got to look down on everyone else because they were better than everyone else. And so they could show contempt and disdain. They could even hate the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the Romans. They could hate the others and they were feeling justified because... And Jesus says, that is not Christianity. He is saying... True biblical Christianity hates hate and loves love. The king doesn't want outward conformity. The king wants your heart to love as he loves. So how do we diffuse? 
How do we diffuse this time bomb that ticks in our life? Jesus says, when we speak with others, he said, when you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. If you're on the way to church, you're running maybe a few minutes late, it's actually more important to sort it out with your brother and sister than get here on time. It's like saying if you're stacking up all those groceries on the conveyor belt to go to the checkout... Sort it out with your brother and sister. That's more important. Dealing with relationship is actually key. He says the way to diffuse it is to go and seek reconciliation. Because the way of the kingdom is not hate but love. And so, Christian, you might be here this morning and you might know that there is someone who has something against you. And you haven't raised it with him. You've kind of put it in the too hard basket and you just shut down. Just not going to deal with that. Not going to confront it. Jesus says confront it. Deal with it. Not with an aim of scoring points against them, but an aim to win them over, to restore relationship, to show love for them. That is what Jesus calls us to do. Love drives reconciliation why is this so important because hate destroys it destroys individuals and it destroys community when there is a breakdown in relationship and you rest in this polite facade that we nice hills middle class educated we're pretty good at polite facade we can do it it's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to real reconciliation based on love. And if you want a church that in 20 years is salt and light and shining God's glory to this community, love God and love each other. And sometimes that can be really tough. Tough because you're living with sinners but tough because you are a sinner yourself. And so it's not just seeking reconciliation with others. How do we diffuse this time bomb that's in our own heart? Going back, think of that broader context of the sermon. It's about not how to enter the kingdom, but what life in the kingdom looks like. How do we enter the kingdom? Chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, it tells us that we do it through repentance. We do it through acknowledgement of our need. We do it through turning away from the substitutes that we have put in God's place and turning back to the true king and giving him our love and allegiance. And remember the Beatitudes, those statements, the blessed are? What's our number one? What's the foundation? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The one that comes recognizing only their need, recognizing their need for grace, their need for forgiveness, their need for mercy, recognizing that if it depended upon them, 
they would not be part of the kingdom. Recognizing they had nothing to bring, nothing to offer. Brothers and sisters, if we want to diffuse hate and anger in our own lives, we need this. We need grace. We need our own desperate need and God's riches overflowing for us. And when we see that, because if we play the game of the scribes and the Pharisees and we build up our own performance and we think that God accepts us because of who we are and what we've done, if we start building our sense of assurance on our performance, inevitably you will start looking down on others with scorn. You'll call it discernment. You'll call it seeing clearly. But you'll think of yourself as better and it will be okay to hate, to murder because actually you are better than them. But life in the kingdom, you go, as Paul said, Christ Jesus died for sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the worst sinner that I know. I know the depths of my heart and I know just how fickle it is. But I also know the grace of God towards me in Christ. That is where the power to forgive is, the power to love is. It is in the gospel of grace. Paul gives us this in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Look at it. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another. Okay, he's given us a command. Go and do it. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You see where the power comes from? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Not just as an example. Oh, he should forgive. I should forgive because he's a forgiving kind of guy. But he forgave you. And you know the depths of what you have been forgiven. You know the poverty in spirit, the mourning over sin, if you're one of his people. Follow God's example as dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. You know the Father's love for you. We just celebrated it at the Lord's table, didn't we? We drank and ate to remind ourselves that a body, Christ's body, was broken. That blood was shed. Blood of the Son of God was shed. His life given so that ours might be spared. While we were enemy, enemies, Paul writes, Christ died for us while we hated God. He loved us. And by his grace, he has given us love for him. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, a righteousness that's just not externally ticking boxes, but comes 
from the Spirit writing the law of God in our heart. It comes through the gospel of grace and never leave it behind. Never walk away. That is where not only the ability but the power to actually live that life comes from. Our forgiveness of others. Our diffusing of our anger and hate. Our disarming of our contempt and disdain. It comes as we realise the love that God has for us in Christ. Stay there. Stay there. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray for us all here this morning. Lord, there may be people here amongst us who don't yet know of the love and the grace that we speak of, of the forgiveness that could be theirs, the good life, the true life, the only life that is found through faith in Christ. Father, I pray that you would, you would be at work in them, showing them your love, convincing them, convicting them of their need. Father, I pray for us all as we think about our relationships with one another, with others outside of this church. Father, I do ask that you would give us insight for where we have been explaining to ourselves, justifying to ourselves, redefining what you clearly condemn, accepting what you say is unacceptable, approving what you reject. Lord, grant us real repentance. Help us to hate sin only. And as we hate sin and we see grace, help us to love our brothers and sisters, fellow sinners, co-heirs with Christ through the grace that you have given us in him. And in his most precious name we pray. Amen.